Welcome to Design Meets Business, a show that inspires designers to think beyond pixels. I'm your host, Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I sit down with creatives to talk about their stories, lessons they've learned during their careers, and how you can use design to make a bigger impact in your organization. Today, we're talking to Tommy Toner, former design director at Nissan and currently co-founder of UK's emerging broadband startup, Cuckoo. We're talking about what separates successful designers from less successful ones, the two viable career choices for creatives, and what he's looking for in a portfolio when he's hiring. Tommy, thank you so much for joining Design Meets Business. Really, really a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I've been looking forward to having a chat with you for a while, so it's awesome to finally have you here. You know, just to give everyone else a background, everyone else who hasn't heard about you yet, um, can't be too many of them, but there might be a few. So uh, you've got a very diverse background spanning a lot of freelancer roles and uh, now head of UX and brand at uh, an up-and-coming player on the broadband market. We're going to talk a bit about that. So um, we're going to talk about all your career and maybe your time at Nissan in leading design there and what you've learned from that. But before we go into all that good stuff, let's start talking a bit about your background, You know how you started out as a front-end developer, actually, and what made you drop uh, that for a career in design. Hi, Christian. Uh, firstly, thank you so much for having me on board. I've been ex- it's been exciting uh, uh, to, to join you for this chat today and super relevant topics. Hopefully, we'll have a good chat today. Um, yeah, so before I go into uh, sort of my more recent professional history, I thought it'd be interesting to mention how it all began. So this is actually a secret that I've not told many people, um, but you might find interesting. So I don't know if you're familiar, but there used to be a game called Command and Conquer Tiberian Sun, which was a, a PC PC game. So I'm not a gamer by any means. However, this one game captured my imagination and I was very involved in the community. Uh, you know, with a clan uh, and sort of playing online with friends, age about 14 at this period. So I got into chatting on the forum of which I was then inspired to start creating some visual assets for my team or my clan's kind of uh, signatures on the forum. And that was actually how I first learned and taught myself Photoshop, Adobe Photoshop, probably CS1 or whatever it was back then. Um, so from from then, that was kind of sparked my uh, sort of love of design. I wasn't actually an art student at the period, so it was all quite new to me. Um, sort of, you know, in those early days of the interactive web, it was an exciting time and it's where visual design first started playing sort of a big role. So yeah, then I went on to study at the University of Leeds, um, a degree called new media. Now, the reason why I want to bring that up is because I think people might find it interesting. It was before really user experience was an established kind of academic course, which you much, you know, it's much more common now. You can study human-centered design, much, uh, you know, a variety of universities across the world. Um, and, and it's a much more kind of, I guess, more established and respected profession now. But when I was doing it, this course was called new media, which my, you know, my, my parents, I think had, weren't too keen on and found quite amusing. My, my dad actually, I think, called it a Mickey Mouse subject, um, which was basically, it was a hybrid of design meets kind of communication. And that was kind of where I learned my trade. And there was a bit of code flown in and it was actually cold fusion, <laughs> which unfortunately is no use whatsoever anymore. <laughs> um, so that was kind of where I then, as you say, my first role outside of university was, um, was a front end developer. Um, an agency, um, which which I loved. I mean, I found it incredibly 
frustrating at times because it wasn't really, I, I didn't study computer science. I wasn't necessarily a coder by trade, um, but I kind of threw myself into it. Um, and and in the end, it, it paid dividends later on. Like even to this day, when I'm creating user interfaces, that first role as a front-end developer was super important. After that front-end developer role, I was looking to, I wanted to go back to my sort of creative roots. It was what I really enjoyed, but I didn't really know where to start or where to look. I popped up a portfolio and then I ended up getting a, a role at Sky, um, at B Sky B, which um, in the UK is a, it's a huge corporation, but they, they have a number of different sub-brands from broadband to sports and television, etc. I started as an acquisition designer, so designing ad banners. I don't know if you're familiar with ActionScript 3. And then after that, I, I kind of moved into uh, a more product design role, which is my first exposure to user experience and user interface design as a sort of trade. It was something I was fascinated in because it was, you know, I was able to maintain being a creative visual designer, but I was able to fix and solve complex problems, which was, which is what I think you'll, as we hopefully will talk is kind of where I get a lot of my inspiration from. I, I enjoy problem solving. And I think that's where design um, is super valuable for business. You know, it's ultimately fixing complex problems through, through design. After Sky, uh, which was up in Leeds in Northern England, I kind of made my move to the, to, to the big city of London, not very naive, not knowing much. I, I made the move to go decision to go freelance. And it, I'd never done that before, like in a professional capacity. Obviously, I'd helped out, you know, friends and family businesses and sort of smaller companies. So I'd, I spent about six years in the London design and advertising agency space where I was, you know, f- lucky enough to work on some awesome international brands from websites to apps to mixed reality experiences. And then more recently, I joined Nissan, the, the automotive brand where I started off as a designer and I was sort of the second UX designer actually in the global global sort of experience team as it were uh, there wasn't really an established user experience practice in Nissan at a global level at that stage so we kind of, it was up to us to kind of define what are the processes how can we add value to the customer experience across all of these different uh, journeys at, at Nissan and then uh, as the time went on, we, we grew the team quite rapidly and our influence across Nissan in terms of what value we could add was growing. My role ele- got elevated to design director where I was also the user experience manager, managing a team of, um, of UX designers, UI designers. Um, and then that kind of brings me up to, to current day, which is my, so my, my, re- my most recent venture that I want to talk about today is, is, is Cuckoo. Now, for those that don't know, Cuckoo Broadband, it's a UK-based internet service provider. And we, we've just launched a couple of months ago. The broadband industry in the UK is somewhat broken in the sense that you look at things like Trustpilot or, or MPS scores of UK broadband companies and they're... they're outrageously low it's quite shocking actually so in the same way monzo and revolut came and disrupted the finance sector or bulb energy or octopus if you're based in the uk came and disrupted the energy sector the the idea of cuckoo broadband came about that we could apply these similar principles customer first sort of approach to and a design-led approach to our product there was scope to disrupt this market 
All right. Thanks. That's a very comprehensive background about yourself. That's all good. No more questions for there. <laughs> One thing that I've noticed is that you've worked across different types of companies in different types of sectors and at different types of levels. So I'm wondering, in your experience, how is design treated and approached and applied in agencies versus how is it applied and approached when you're in-house? Yeah, great question. I'll start with the agency world. And again, this is going to de depend on whether you're hired as a freelancer or whether you're hired as a permanent member of an agency team. When you're a freelancer, you're more of a hired gun and you might not be exposed um, to the sort of more, more strategic uh, side of, of a project. Whereas when you're in-house um, in an agency, you're going to be very much part of the team trying to solve and meet a client's needs. So how it would typically work is a client or a brand would come with a problem that they can't solve in-house. And that might be because they don't have the in-house expertise, like to give you an example, it might be that a lot of in-house brands might not have a motion design or a motion department. So in order to, if they're pulling off, maybe it's a, a campaign for, for growth, or it might be some kind of interactive experience that they want to launch on their site. Um, that's, you know, typically might not be something an in-house team could pull off. So that's where the, the specialism comes in. So what you'll find with the sort of agency world is you have some incredibly talented people all, all brought together to solve one problem or a series of problems. And the difference is, I think, with in-house is the ability to not just have your eye on the project at hand, but also to have that eye on the, the longer term roadmap. So to be to be a lot more strategic, you're not just worried about the campaign that the agency is currently working on, but you're, you're also looking six months ahead, 12 months ahead. The difference with in-house is that you're going to be much more business driven. You, you've, you know, because it's ultimately on, it falls on you to develop or push this product or brand forward. So I always try and say, you know, never design blind. And what I mean by that is everything can be measured. Um, obviously, this depends on what you do, whether you're um, an illustrator or a user experience designer. But you should always, always try and start um, with a project of how you're going to measure the value rather than trying to retrofit it. So, you know, setting up a project with goals in mind and knowing how to measure them, whether that's brand perception, customer satisfaction, reducing cost per acquisition or just improving engagement. These are the kind of things that as an in-house team, you define yourself. And I think that's a big difference between the agency world. So I, I love what you just said, you know, about being much more business driven when you're in-house versus in the agency world. I'd like to stay on that topic for a bit and talk about measuring because design inherently or historically is something that couldn't be measured because we've often likened it too much to art. Uh, art doesn't solve a problem. Art just exists. Uh, design is moving more and more towards that area uh, of business where it has to be measured. But as designers, we're struggling a lot with measuring. We don't really have a way of measuring design. We don't have a way of measuring the experience. I know we have the NPS, debatable how how valuable it is. I know we have the SUS or SAS or whatever it's called. Again, that's something created in the 80s. I'm not sure that's up to standards anymore. In your experience, how do you measure design the best way possible in what 2020? <laughs> that, yeah, it's a really great question. And you know, you you find yourself quite often asking yourself that question. You know, how do you measure 
value or the impact um, of your work, you know, in an organization. I think first and foremost, it depends what you're doing. And, and, and that sounds obvious. But um, going back to my point I've just made earlier, there was a time when sometimes when I was sort of more junior working in-house, that I would almost ask, wouldn't ask questions. So I would, you know, you'd be given a brief, maybe it's to redesign um, a homepage. Now I would ask questions, you know, what, but, but why? You know, be curious as to like, why am I being asked of this task? And as you say, there are many formal metrics, whether that's MPS, and for anyone that's not aware, that's just, you know, net promoter score, which is the simple question, would you recommend brand X to, to a friend or family on a scale? And yeah, it depends what you're doing. And I, and I think, it, for example, Cuckoo, we use for brand perception, we, we do use MPS. And we use it at different moments in the different journeys. So we can measure the MPS of those different journeys and then we, we bring them together. You know, there's a, the other, one thing that we've seen a transition towards is being reactionary to success or measuring success of a project. It is equally as important to ask the customer. Before we'd use, you know, different metrics, whether it was KPIs, whether, you know, are people generating leads? Are people dropping off into the funnel? What is our cost per acquisition? Those sort of literal uh, KPIs and metrics. However, what we tried to do at Cuckoo is, yes, we, we obviously measure our success with those, but we've also been looking at sort of a, a big emphasis on customer research. So, you know, just as simple as Trustpilot is a huge one for us. You know, if we release a new product feature um, and then we start getting, you know, positive or negative responses based on that change, you know, that to me is a measure of, of how well or something is or isn't doing. And it's something that we can be very reactionary to, you know. Um, I always remember the, the famous story of the BBC. Uh, BBC did a redesign of the BBC Sport. And the second it went live, it got barrage of negative negative comments. For rightly or wrongly, and, you know, um, I think I remember at the time I thought it was great. Um, and they obviously then reacted to it and brought back in the features that the people wanted. And I think that's just a, a shift that we're going to see. In terms of measuring UX, I've always been an advocate of is, is user testing and, and, and getting everything in front of the user as much as possible. And I know it's not always possible, particularly if you're um, an independent designer or maybe you work in a small studio where the budget's just not there. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's easy ways you can you can get around it, right? You can, there's guerrilla testing, there's friends and family, there's always someone you can ask your opinions of who might be less subjective than your own opinion. There's a million ways to, to skin the cat as it were. Yeah, I think it also depends a lot on what type of company it is and what type of work you're doing. Because I remember when we used to work for, when I used to work for British Gas, we, we actually did use the NPS score. But we didn't use the score itself. What we did use was the raw data. So the, the raw comments of the customers. So we took a sample, we uh, categorized all the raw comments. And then a year and a half later, after we launched our project, the, the new improved part of the website, we took a sample of the NPS score again, or not the score, but the data behind it. And we tracked whether the comments that we wanted to get rid of have disappeared or not. That was a very easy way for us to track whether we've actually solved the problem we set out to solve. So I think there are ways of figuring out the value of design, but I think unlike in many other industries, it requires us to think what those metrics are. While in other industries, you know, if you have sales, there's, a, there's how much you sell, 
right? If you have, I don't know, marketing, it's, well, what's your conversion rate or whatever marketing people use, right? But in design, it just feels like as an industry, we don't have a metric yet. We need to figure that uh, on our own, which is not necessarily a problem. But when you're a bit more junior at the beginning of your career, I think that's a bit more difficult to, because you don't have the experience to know, well, how do I track this? And I guess that's the next question. When you are a bit towards the beginning of your career, how do you tackle measuring design, if you will, without having the experience of having done it, you know, 10, 15, 20 times before? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think it's one that all designers fall, um, when you're first starting out, it's really hard to not be emotionally attached to the work you do. And it doesn't matter whether that's an illustration or even if it's even if it's UX design, you're designing a new component or a product or a feature or something. You've put your your love and your energy and your time into creating something. And obviously, you know, you would most people, you know, be proud of that thing that you've done. And when you necessarily get feedback, it can be disheartening. And it's and I think the most important thing when you're potentially getting feedback early on is to not be emotionally attached to the work you're doing. I, it was interesting what you just said there. I think it's funny that in terms of design and other industries, you know, the design is subjective, yes, but it but it's also a science. And I think um, I do believe that there's elements of design which which are a science, and you can, and it is measurable. Um, and and I think when when you're starting out i think the 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 biggest thing you can do is ask ask for ask for help you know expose yourself don't be afraid to to put yourself on the line and and expose yourself to your sort of your lead designers your senior designers and if you know if you're working for yourself if you're maybe an independent uh designer and you don't have that network you know there is tools out there there's you know there's things like you know, the obvious ones like Dribble and Behance where you can maybe validate some of your designs. Yes, it might be, it's more, it's probably more aimed at sort of visual designers, but even, you know, UX and UI designers, I think there's, there's different platforms out there, which you can look to, to seek feedback. And again, just coming back to my earlier point around sort of setting design sort of KPIs, I think whenever you set out on a new project, no matter whether you're a junior or whether you're a director, it doesn't matter, right? You've got to understand why am I doing this? What am I trying to achieve? What is the purpose or what am I trying to solve? And I think if you truly understand that before you set out, then it's much easier to look back and measure and go, hey, you know, I did a good job here. I think this is key to something else as well. Uh, let's segue a bit into hiring and portfolios. And you know, you've hired teams in your career. Uh, and the reason I want to talk about this now is because you just said something that is key to what I believe should be part of a, a portfolio design. And that is why you're doing what you're doing. And I'm not talking about why, why are you a designer, but why have you made the decisions you've made in this project? Why have you started this project? What was the point of it? Because nobody wakes up in the morning saying, I want a new website. Right? There's a problem that someone wants to be solved and they think that the website can solve it. So when we're talking portfolios and how designers can talk about their work, I believe is super important to keep reiterating why they're doing stuff because that shows whoever's looking at that portfolio that there's a reason behind everything. So other than that, you've probably looked at many portfolios in your career. What other things are important to you when you're trying to hire someone? Yeah, hiring is really interesting. It doesn't matter what stage in your career you are, but when you're applying for a role, I think there's a few things that I personally 
look for. One is passion, you know, and that, and that goes without saying, but you sometimes can't tell that from a portfolio, I mean, you, or, or a CV. If, but if you can get across that you're, you know, you're, you're passionate or you're, you're genuine, uh, sincere kind of interest in, in the industry, um, then it does go a really long way. This is quite funny. I mean, I remember I was working with an agency. I was hiring, looking for a role this when I was at Nissan. And we were looking for what I would call, you know, a hybrid. So for example, it was a, we were looking for someone who was a user experience designer, but that was super passionate about UI design um, because of the nature of the kind of role. That was the two skills that we were looking for. So we went to the to the agency, you know, this is this is the kind of designer we're looking for. And and they came back and told me that person doesn't exist. <laughs> they, they said uh, they said that that's that's a unicorn. Um, so, you know, one thing I've always tried to tell people is, well, just be more unicorn. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's super important, particularly in this the last few years, design in particular in digital design, it's split into quite siloed factions. You know, you have a user interface designer, then you have a user experience designer, then you have a UX researcher, etc. Um, before you know it, you've got a team of five specialisms um, within one team, which I think makes sense to some extent. However, I think it's important to not silo yourself just in that role and explicitly say, do you know what? I don't touch anything else. One of the best UI designers I've ever worked with was also one of the world's leading authors on Kirigami, the Japanese, <laughs> which is a Jap the Japanese uh, art form of folding paper. And then when you open it, it is, creates a 3D object. And I think it's having the, this breadth of skills or at least an interest in other skills that is what we look for. And just to give another example, I think, you know, when, when we're creating digital products, whether that's an app or, or a website, and we're joining a product team. One thing I think that's quite undervalued quite often is the, is the development side or then the, the awareness of how things work. Now, I'm not, I've never expected, you know, to a, a UI designer to also be fluent in JavaScript and, and SAS and everything. But I think it's having a, a genuine curiosity into how things work. What, what are the limitations of React UI framework or, or what are the um, capabilities of um, WebGL? Because if you, you don't know what you don't know, but at the same time, I think it can really add value to a team when you've got a cross-pollinated team. So, you know, you might have a developer who actually came from a creative background, or you might have um, a designer who um, on the side likes, uh, likes dabbling with with equations or whatever, and, and it creates a really rich team. And that's something that, that we look for um, when we're hiring. I think the last point is really, really important. I've worked in product teams before with what they're called UI engineers. So there's this hybrid between someone who's a front-end developer, but also has an interest in just general, just the basics of intuitiveness and user-friendliness, general usability principles. And I can tell you how many times, or I actually can't tell you because it's been so many times when I've been out-designed by an engineer. Because when they kind of overlap a bit with yours, and I have some background in coding, so I, I will never tell them how to code, but by understanding the limitations, as you said, I can design something that they won't spend five weeks developing. It'll only take them three. Uh, but also the other way around, when developers understand design, it just creates this highly productive team. There's this myth that developers don't really care about 
the users. They just care about the technology. And that couldn't be further away from the truth. Most developers I've ever worked with actually truly care. And some of them um, can bring some brilliant ideas as well. So I think I always said design is a team sport. And um, being able to understand the other side of the story, uh, development, is just as valuable as developers being able to understand design and working together much closer. So I I really love that you've, you've mentioned that. I guess your background in coding helps a little bit with doing that or helping project <laughs> yes slightly slightly biased <laughs> slightly biased yeah, well, yeah it's, look, uh, it's certainly yeah. i i don't think people should code honestly i've uh, i wrote articles about this i talk about this i think design is a full-time job and designers should design but i also do believe that designers should understand the limitations of the technology their product team is working in so they can become better designers just like designers also need to understand you know research and and all that other stuff that's part of their job just how designers need to understand the business and how they're getting paid at the end of the month or, or for example understand the churn and why the churn is important to the business and and try to figure out how they can do anything about the churn in a SaaS company etc cetera, etc cetera. i think that as designers we need to evolve more towards an, a, a general a wider understanding of the business than just pushing pixels to move on to next question, you are you said earlier, I actually didn't know this, that you were the uh, second UX designer at Nissan globally. I can just imagine how many challenges that came up with. Uh, just, just having to set up all those processes, having to just create a team, again, at a global scale, to talk a bit about those couple of years you spent there. Yeah, sure. It was, um, I was actually... Reluctant uh, when I was approached about the role, um, I was a little bit a little bit reluctant, reluctant mainly because you know I'd never worked, I hadn't worked in a co- really corporate environment in quite a long time, um, and I was very much used to the creative agency world, which has a different, very much a different vibe, and I didn't know, you know, I didn't really understand what I would be able to achieve versus what I wouldn't, and how creative it would be. So I ended up taking the role and. It's, it's such a fascinating place and I look back with a lot of fondness. So one of a, so Nissan is actually one of AEM's uh, biggest clients in the sense that they have, uh, sorry, Adobe's biggest clients for their AEM product because there's about 200, uh, 200 market websites across the world, uh, across three different brands, Nissan, Datsun and um, Nymphinity. It was a super exciting place to work in the sense that any changes or, or sort of design strategy that we would apply would then be rolled out across four or five continents in 200 markets, which is super exciting. And, and that's just on the responsive website. And then on, on the sort of product, uh, sort of native app side, there was, uh, I think at the time, there was up to about 50 apps worldwide, all of varying degrees of good, um, which all needed sort of gov- governance to be put in place and, and a sort of a unified design strategy. So one of the most interesting things I think that I, that I got out of it, you know, I was working in a, um, a diverse team across different time zones and cultures. You know, I'd have, we'd have early morning calls with Japan and we'd have afternoon calls with the United States and India. And we're trying, you know, our team was ultimately became responsible for setting the experience strategy across all of the, the customer journeys. So, and by a customer journey in automotive, you're looking at kind of that pre-sales when you're discovering what car you might want and if if that car brand is right for you, um, through to like managing your, your, your driving experience, you know, if something goes wrong and you need a service, and then to like kind of 
after sales, so buying accessories and that kind of thing. So it's a really challenging sector in itself. There's a really clear, complex set of user journeys. Um, and what we would do is we introduced this um, concept of journey teams. Now, previously, it was like the one our one team was looking at all the customer journeys at one time, and it became, uh, it, you know, it was a challenge because they almost needed full-time attention and you and people and almost people to become SMEs like subject matter experts in very specific things it was a big ask for someone you know as a UX designer to be knowledgeable in the whole spectrum of things it's, it's impossible so we introduced these journey teams and it worked really well so you'd have one person would be um, an expert in just test drives and then you'd have one person who would be an expert in just matching finding the right car for you so and it was and it and it worked really well and we, that those teams would have SMEs from the product team, from the data analytics team, from technology. So it was almost like a, a representative from each each, each function working uh, as one. And it worked really well. What were some of the challenges of doing that? Because you said already very, you said a lot of entities, right? 200 websites, 50 apps at different levels. That's that's probably one, right? The, the scale of it. Time zone, working with people remotely, probably another one. Anything else worth mentioning there that was really challenging for you? Yeah, so the the, the big and you know anyone will sympathize with me if they've worked in you know big corporations, and I'm sure you you can very much sympathize with this as well. But the stakeholder management was a big chunk of sort of our role, and this was the first time I actually experienced designers being involved in stakeholder management at the, in this kind of capacity. You know, normally, you know, even thinking back to the time at Sky, you'd have. Product teams would almost be a little bit separate to the business, but because of the way that we were set up at Nissan, we were responsible for selling in our, our vision or, or selling in our new um, our proposals to uh, quite a high level, to you know, to sort of exact level, and that comes with its own challenges because you've got. It, like you say, it, it's not just all those complexities of time zones or, or different cultures. It's also then you've got an extremely complex stakeholder map, which you've got to navigate. And for a designer, that's not always, you know, uh, we don't often have experience in that. And in terms of like working through that, I think we came up with different processes, which we, we realized worked for us. So just to give um, an example that maybe some other people can resonate with, we introduced very early like the idea of basically bringing stakeholders on from a very very early phase whether that's doing things like you know the google crazy eights process or you know these very kind of to a corporate environment quite abstract concepts of you know fleshing out what our design requirements are what the user needs are moving away from a very kind of i don't want to say archaic but kind of very old school corporate way of thinking to kind of much more new sort of product and technology driven way of thinking would you say that being able to do stakeholder management is one of the most important skills for a designer, at least as they climb the career ladder, it becomes more and more important. Would you agree with that? 100%, absolutely. And, you know, the more senior you get, or there will come a point in people's careers as a designer when maybe you get to sort of a senior designer level and you have to ask yourself, do I want to stay doing the craft um, and be involved in the granular execution of a design because some of the best user interface designers I know have no interest <laughs> in in managing people or, or you know being involved in sort of 
product roadmaps. They'd rather just be given a brief and or a complex challenge and solving that challenge through design. But they don't want to be involved any wider than that, which I totally respect. You know, and that's um, that's their choice. But then you might get another person who might get to the phase where you know they're like, actually, you know, I'd, I want to move away from spending you know hours a day in Sketch or Adobe or whatever it is. And actually, I'd like to maybe get more on the people side, whether that's the operational or delivery side of things. And what we're seeing is a shift, I think, you know, that designers and, and won't necessarily always be designers. I think the way that the industry is moving, you need, you're going to have people that need to manage these big in-house design teams, but they can't just be a manager. To be a good design manager, you, I believe you need to have come from a design background, you know, just in the way that if you were going to be a head of technology somewhere, you'd need that technological background. Yeah, good. Then we agree on that. It's super important. I, it's fascinating. You, it's fascinating to learn to do that because I haven't done stakeholder management at a very high level until I worked for British Gas, and then I was then I felt like I got thrown in through a pool with very deep water because as a designer you never have to do stuff like that and suddenly you have to know how to swim and some people uh, and, hate it you know and some and people and do. some people it's just not for them um and that you know what that's also fair that's why there are different parts for different designers as you just said right you you can just stay and do the creative part or you can actually go the other the other direction and um so it's interesting that you had the same you you've learned that after you ended up in a corporation so you've managed a lot of designers in your career, and I'm wondering, have you noticed any pattern? Have you seen what's something that successful designers do all the time versus designers who are maybe less successful? Yeah, I believe there is. There is trends that you can, you can see. Um, and I think this comes back to a point we, we, we were chatting about earlier in a conversation, that curiosity is I think um, is is a word that I I I probably overuse, but it's about being curious, and the some of the the more successful designers or the, the best designers I've ever worked with, they kind of they're 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 curious. Your design career is not a sprint; it's a marathon. You know, we're in an industry that there is no finish line, and because of that. You know, we're constantly evolving, constantly growing. I think it's a blessing and a curse sometimes as a designer. You can never rest on your laurels. You can you can never kind of chill out because there's always a new technology or, you know, new a new trend or experience that comes out. But I think that's equally what makes it such an exciting place to work in. You know, we're never it's never never a dull day as a designer. And I think in order to be curious, you've got to be passionate. It's not one of those industries where you can just turn up. I think to, to <laughs> it's uh, it's certainly not that. And I think if you if you're truly passionate and you really do care about the products you're working on or, or the brands that you're you're that you're helping grow, then then you they tend to be more successful. And the more exposure you can give yourself in uh, a variety of different spheres or sectors within your company, then the better. So, you know, just to give an example, designers tend to stay in their lanes or their silos, but there's no reason why that should be, you know, like there's no reason why you couldn't reach out to your operations team and, and understand how they work or go for, for a, a coffee or a pint with the data analytics guys. And I think it's all about breaking down those silos and designers that, that are put, expose themselves and put themselves out there tend to be the ones that I think are more successful. Great. I think that actually answers a question that I just wanted to ask, but let me ask you anyway. Maybe you have a different <laughs> answer to it. So there's this 
understanding right now that design leaders and designers in general should strive to become more like business leaders or more like business people. But that transition can't happen from one day to another. There have to be some steps in between starting your career to getting to that point where you understand what the business is all about, where you understand how design can help the business, where you understand all these things that are required of you to be able to be a business person. So if you would start again in your career today, how would you get from that point of knowing nothing to becoming a business person? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And, you know, like we said, some people um, simply want to be a designer, but then then there are there will be others that, you know, I don't think you can design and business are a part of the same thing. You should always care about business. If you don't understand the business, then you can't design anymore. There's always going to be a goal to the business or, or an aim and, and, and that's business led, even if they say it's customer led. So I think I would, if I was going to go back, I'd expose myself to more strategic um, and operational sides of the business much earlier on. So yes, I decided to to be a freelancer for six years. Um, so you do limit yourself a little bit if you, to, um, to expose yourself to those areas of the business if you're in freelance. But there are ways you can do it, you know. I mean, <laughs> I, uh, may I suggest dating someone who works on the business side, <laughs> which is actually how I met my... Uh, that's how I met my girlfriend, but that's a story for another day. Because I learned, I learned a lot from sort of friends who were either business analysts or, or product owners. And I was, again, coming back to this curiosity. Um, you know, understanding how, say, procurement works or, or, or resourcing. You're not by default going to get exposure to that kind of thing. But it's up to you to, to put yourself forward. Maybe it's a case of grabbing 30 minutes with, with X, Y, and Z team. Make your own luck, as it were. So it's about seeking help from others and not expecting it to come to you. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And I think if you're in a position where you, you you're not in a big corporate environment, or maybe you're not, you're just working in a. If you say you're an independent designer and you, you know you're worried that you you're not going to get this business experience. One thing I would potentially recommend would be to reach out to some smaller agencies, maybe some independent studios, um, where they, yeah, they might not get you involved in things like finances, but, um, but, but what they could get you on is, is areas outside of your comfort zone, outside of design. Um, I think, my, yeah, I, how I would see it is smaller, smaller agencies and teams tend to uh, get their designers involved in, in a lot more than some of the larger ones. Awesome. Tommy, we're nearing the end. I have a couple more questions. I ask everyone on the show this. So uh, the first one is, what's one thing you wish more designers would know? I think it's important that designers understand um, that, that you do have the ability to diversify and cross-pollinate your skills. If you've left school and you're a graphic designer, for example, there's no reason why you can't grow into being a user experience designer or you know a, a UX researcher or, or whatever that might be. I think people sometimes feel like they've been siloed or that they've been put down a path that they're not comfortable with or that they maybe have uh, not regrets, but you know they maybe want to move out of. And I think it's just super important to know that you know nothing is forever. Things evolve and change, as does the industry. And there's always room to to grow and shape your own career into something uh, that that's right for you. As I've explained, I came, I started off as a front end developer into a a creative designer, visual designer, then into product design, and then sort of now manager. So, um, you know, there's nothing is forever is my uh, takeaway on that. And I think you become a more rounded 
uh, designer by by having more uh, strings to your bow. You know, designers are fixers and essentially creative problem solvers. You can solve more problems if you understand a wider variety of concepts, and and teams recognise that. So, so coming back to my original point, I think it's be more unicorn. <laughs> be more unicorn. That's yeah. That's yeah. You should put that on your Twitter bio or, or <laughs> yeah. in the LinkedIn header. Um, <laughs> right, Tommy. Last one. How do you reckon the future of designers and industry looks like? Oh, good question. So I, you know, I, for me, I think that what I'm what I'm anticipating is that designers design will be seated at the top level of business in a way that it kind of hasn't before. At the, at the moment, design can still feel like a grassroots movement where we have to sometimes fight for our, our pitch or place at the table. But I think those days of being sort of second-class citizens are, are over. You, it, you only have to look at some of the big tech companies you know, to use the obvious examples, Apple and Google, where you've got roles such as chief design officers, chief experience officers, which were roles that didn't really exist a number of years ago. And I think that's going to be a trend that we see more and more where CEOs, investors, sort of boards are going to are now realizing the importance of brand and user experience, product design. You know, brand and UX are two sides of the same coin. And I think people are seeing that in terms of business, and meeting business needs, these roles are just absolutely paramount, just in the same way that an operations person or an operations department is, as well as a finance team. So I think and what we're seeing as well over the last sort of five years is a shift to these companies building in-house teams. For example, with Cuckoo, we've rather than outsource everything, we're looking to build an in-house team and grow that team, which you can, so we're gonna see all kinds of new types of strategic leadership um, of how those in-house teams are run and i think you know it comes down to if companies don't prioritize design and elevate it to the same prominence as things like operations product they just simply won't succeed and then lastly i think the secondly i think we'll, we'll see a shift to something more dynamic in the future so you know there's these buzzwords such as customer experience transformation and digital transformation that you you see everywhere you know i think customers that aren't able to react quickly to 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 changing customer needs um, will will fall behind. So I think we'll see a shift to brands listening to customers in new ways. So just to use you know a, an example, we've grown a community forum um, at Cuckoo, and and any any feedback customers have or ideas customers have, we then that and then informs our product roadmap, which is a kind of a you know people have been doing it, but but it seems to be becoming more popular where it we direct feedback from customers is then instantly almost uh, impacting the the roadmap. Tommy, this has been an hour that went past really fast. Last thing I want to ask you is where can people find you? Where can they get in touch with you? And um, also uh, feel free to add Cuckoo's website and everything else in here as well. Sure. Yeah, it has flown by. It's been a fast hour. So, as I've ex- sort of alluded to, my my latest venture is uh, is is Cuckoo, which you can reach uh, at cuckoo.co. Uh, co. So, yeah, if you're in the UK and you need broadband, you should check us out. Um, and yeah, you can uh, reach me at uh, tommytoner.com if anyone would like to uh, reach out and contact me. Awesome. We'll add all of this in the show notes as always so people can easily find you. Tommy, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thank you very much, Christian. Cheers.
that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Since you've made it this far, I hope you found this useful. And if you did, you should know there's much more content just like this on the way. So if you want to learn more about how designers can impact businesses, please consider subscribing and maybe sharing the episode with others. And before I say goodbye, remember that you can find show notes and links for this episode and others on our website, designmeetsbusiness.co. Catch you in the next one.